It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hello and happy Tuesday. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Sometimes I like to say what day it is because I I can't remember what day it is. (laughs) You too. Life has gotten to that point now. You should just begin every show. Welcome to a day. Yeah. Welcome to Insert Day. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a robot Brian from Tuesday. Oh, well, that voice here is Ian Simpkins. I'm Brian Fromm. It's true. Uh, we're glad you're joining us. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. We love to have interactions there. In fact, uh, here in a couple minutes, we're going to read some of your interactions. At Twitter, also at Common Good Talk. That's at Common Good Talk. You can find our podcast wherever it is uh, that you get your podcast. So uh, jumping in here, there was a story that I believe you posted on our Facebook page mm-hmm. uh, that when I read it, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's that's a big deal. Like, that's a big one. It says this. Let me read you the background of it. Uh, a doctor and medical ethicist argues life after 75 is not worth living. His name is Ezekiel Ezekiel Emanuel, uh, which, uh, fascinatingly, his brother, former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel, mm-hmm. uh, Ezekiel Emanuel, uh, also they have another brother who's a talent agent. Uh, it was him in which they based, what show was it, uh, about like uh, Hollywood agents? Oh, I'm getting old and forgetting. <laughs> anyway, I'll come back to it. All right. But uh, that was the other brother. So quite the brothers here. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Well, Ezekiel Emanuel in 2014 published an essay in The Atlantic called Why I Hope to Die at 75. Because Emanuel is a medical doctor and the chair of the University of Pennsylvania's Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy, as well as the chief architect of Obamacare, the article stirred enormous controversy. Can't imagine why. I should say, just for clarity, a chief architect of Obamacare. I think I just said the. Right, right, smart. Uh, Emmanuel vowed to refuse not only heroic medical interventions once he turned 75, but also antibiotics and vaccinations. His argument, older Americans live too long in a diminished state, raising the question of, as he put it, whether our consumption is worth our contribution. There mm. it is. Whether our consumption is worth our contribution. They're going to go on since this was 2014. Why this is coming out now is this author, Stephen Hall, uh, just on, in technology review, just interviewed Emmanuel again to see if he still believes this. But uh, understanding the background of that is particularly this, whether our consumption is worth our contribution. What are your thoughts about him saying uh, we shouldn't want to live past 75? Well, you mentioned it, and I, I want to read a whole bunch of these comments I because it. I... There's so much good insight here, and I do highly encourage you when we comments post, on our Facebook right page. when we yeah. post these articles. It is this is this is really really helpful, even just for Brian and I to work through some of these things. So I'm going to start with Dr. Marsha Vaughn, who I feel like we're quoting a lot these days Seriously. for good reason. She's brilliant. She said the key word to me is worth. If your worth is defined by your productivity and therefore by default your strength and or youth, then yes, after your most quote productive years are done and you're finished working for pay, generally to help someone else become worth more then sure, your life is worth little to none. You take more than you give. You cost more than you contribute. It's purely an economic argument. Mm. Uh, she also elsewhere in this thread says, you can't have this argument without discussing the cost of health care and the responsibilities of caregiving, which fall mostly on women who may also be in the middle of caring for children and or working outside the home. So mm. that I think is a very 
uh, helpful perspective, yeah. particularly as someone who you know works in the field of uh, psychology and therapy. Uh, Isaiah McAleese said, whether our consumption is worth our contribution, quoting from the article, and he says, so life is transactional? What about mm. love and family? And try telling this to my wife's 90-plus-year-old grandparents. Yeah. But there are a couple of comments about that. Like someone else, uh, Catherine Jacobson says, oh, please, God values life. How can productivity and usefulness to society even be measured? Yeah. Uh, Mickey O'Connor said, his arguments feel very one-dimensional as the focus is producing. My grandmothers had significant impact in my life after mm-hmm. they were 75, which I would say is also true for uh, my grandparents. Uh, Jason Rudiger said, betcha he'll be uh, at the head of the line to change his mind on a certain birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Julie Anderson said, my aunt who's in her mid-80s goes to the gym more than I do. <laughs> David Cook says, as someone closing in on that age, I strongly disagree. Caleb took the tough battles when he was in his 80s. Moses led Israel out of Egypt past 80. I have a dear friend who is 95 and having a great impact on many he helps. We yep. need a purpose serving others. That is what makes life, and especially in our older years, worthwhile. God has a purpose for each of us at every age. Uh, Heather from Bieber. Bieber? Bieber. Is it Bieber? Yep. This is someone you know. That is my cousin. I think grandchildren on the world would beg to differ. <laughs> Justin McRoberts, who's brilliant. We should have him on the show, by the way. said, I suppose we'll find out uh, how real that is when he turns 75. <laughs> yes. Which he addresses in this article. <laughs> Which he does, right. And I'd love to know your thoughts on how he addresses that, because I think... A lot of these comments, like Katie Go, she said, my adopted grandfather lived his life more so than most people a third of his age. He didn't slow down until the very end, and he died at 93, but mm. you would have never known it. So some very interesting personal experiences. Dee Bratton said, I very much look forward to my 70s, 80s, 90s, and yes, God willing, my hundreds. I feel younger today than I ever have. God has a purpose for me, and as long as I follow that path, my life will be very long indeed. So. Mm. In light of all of that, I'd be a good I'd be I'd be curious to know how those hit you just as people who are engaging with this show are responding to this article. Uh, yeah, I, I would have responded in much the same way as most of those people. Really? Uh, a lot of it's anecdotal, right? I know a person. I know a person. I know a uh-huh, person. Right. But the, the, the worst thing for me in his reasoning is this, uh, you know, our, is our life's value measured by what we can contribute? Right. Okay. Is our life's value measured by what we can contribute versus what we can consume? Because- uh, I think Marsha said it really well, but he says it well, too. If that is the answer, then there's probably a case that there, we all know a lot of older people who are consuming a lot more than they're contributing, but it doesn't mean that their life has any less value. Mm. Uh, and, and I think that's where a lot of this gets hung up is like, what are you how are you defining value of a person's life? Uh, and he's doing it in, in, a, in a bit of a scary way. They do ask him uh he he. They asked him, "Do you have any regrets about saying this as you're getting older?" And he said, "Not really." Laughing, and he said, uh, "They asked him if this is an extreme position." He said, first of all, it's not an extreme position. I'm not going to die at 75. I'm not committing suicide. I'm not asking for euthanasia. I'm just going to stop taking medications with the sole justification to keep prolonging my life." Um, uh, I, I guess what I would say to him is, "That's fine for you to decide to do that. If that's if that is your belief system, I just don't think that." As a medical ethicist, he's saying this is the direction we should go. Right. Uh, that if anyone is truly ethical, if they understand this, that this would be also be what you choose, I think is too much of a step and unfair. It is interesting, too. It's I would love to have another conversation about how we define worth, too, because um, a lot of like what you're saying, these are pretty 
like emotionally driven, like, no, my grandpa, who I clearly have affection for, they're not just saying, oh, I care about this person, but they're also saying, no, they're still contributing, though. So kind of his position that, like, it's a purely transactional economic statement, I actually don't even know if that's necessarily true. And I think that's a worthwhile discussion about some of the weird ways that we place worth only as production or worth only as output. That's a very Western, fairly modern mindset, which is unfortunate. Yeah. If we really did, I mean, because that would apply then to people of all age brackets, that if you are less capable in any capacity, yeah, what do you that, do? Yeah. that somehow is tied to your intrinsic worth. Yeah. Your ontology is now compromised because of that. I, I, I completely stand against that in every way. I don't understand how his argument also then can't go to people who have disabilities. Right. And people who, like, it, it's got to go the same way. He, he does give a window into what he's talking about. He says... People who live a vigorous life to 70, 80, 90 years of age, when I look at those people, what I look at what they do, almost all of it would be classified as play. It's not meaningful work. That's probably not a meaningful life. That's a, that's a huge statement to make yeah, no kidding. that uh, kind of shows more about who he is, I think, than, than where w- true worth is found. But I think worth is something that we need to talk about often. I think that's a good one. Uh, well, coming up next, I want to talk about a pass-through ended really well. Uh, read an article on the Gospel Coalition uh, about a pastor in Tennessee named Ray Ortland would like to discuss that next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to the Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're grateful for you joining us today. Uh, you can continue the conversation with us at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's the Common Good Radio Show at Twitter at common good talk that's at common good talk why do you think we have so much better uh followership on facebook than twitter what would uh, what's the difference what does I mean, that the, say about our audience or the, does it say nothing on well, the twitter handle it's just newer it's newer okay you think it can catch up can we make this a race <laughs> between our two social media platforms yeah. that's the lamest race i've ever heard of <laughs> oh no here comes instagram like, yeah, here we yeah go. right coming in a distant third but it is helpful for us to get feedback from you we posted that article that we talked about last segment and got a lot of feedback before we ever talked about it and we're able to share that with you it feels makes it feel a lot more interactive so go ahead and do that uh we're glad for those of you who do that well on the gospel coalition i've been following on twitter uh, a, a pastor by the name of Ray Ortland. I don't know if you've ever heard of Ray Ortland. Mm-hmm. He's got a, a pretty prolific writing and, and preaching ministry. Uh, he started a church in 2008 after what this author says was a particular difficult period in his life. So at the age of 58, he planted a church. Can you imagine planting a church at 58? Maybe one. That blows my it mind. It does, right? It does. That is not for the faint of heart it either. It is not. And so uh, he is senior pastor of Emmanuel Nashville in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, and in this article, it says this coming Sunday was his last Sunday. Well, now we're past that. So this past Sunday was his last Sunday. And before the author then says, I've watched his ministry from a distance, following his posts, listening to his sermons, reading his tweets, his being one of the most encouraging ones that I follow. And here's what I've learned about his ministry. But before, oh, sorry, hit my microphone. But before <laughs> doing that, before getting into his observations, I want to ask you, do you ever give thoughts to uh, what your la- what you wish or hope your last sermon will be about? I don't want to be dark, like oh, before you die, like no, like literally you're retiring. Oh no, constantly. I think about this all the time. Do you really? Mm-hmm. I've literally never thought about this, and so no, you've never thought our, about this. It's our personality so well, man. But uh, what you've do you th- thought about it before? Not really. No kidding. I should now. I am. <laughs> <laughs> but like, if you knew that you were, let's pretend it all ends well, and you're retiring from community. Uh, it's been this long, fruitful ministry. What do you think right now? I want to hold you to it, but right now, what would your last sermon be about? 
Oh, gosh. Or you haven't gotten that far into thinking process. Oh, no, it like, changes all the time. That's the problem. I'm a oh. perpetual editor. Oh, uh, okay. you know the are you familiar with the phrase pentimento i'm not pentimento is um so they're with infrared technology now they're able to see the different layers of these classical paintings showing that for a lot of these paintings this is like their second or third or fourth draft and like the artist yeah. made a decision, like a decision about like an arm position or something and i feel like when it comes to writing i'm perpetual pentimento it's always like one more draft, one more edit, one more. So I'm thinking about my last sermon ever because I know I hopefully have some time before that. Yeah. It's definitely changed. Honestly, probably right now it would probably be John 17, the, yeah. the unity of the church and how significant a prayer that was for Jesus that we're not just making disciples and we're not yeah. just loving people that we're, we're doing it together. And what a, what a need, what a cry of his heart that was for, for his people to be yeah. unified. Oh, that's good. So what uh, you've left the church well. Uh, you went from, what was it, Poplar Creek to mm-hmm. community. Mm-hmm. Uh, so obviously that wasn't contentious. Was it, so what was your last sermon there? Oh, I did a, I did a, uh, a two-part sermon, actually, a two-part leaving sermon. Uh, it was about listening and following. Interesting. Yeah. Man, I've never really thought. This wasn't the intention of where I expected to go, but now I'm going to give it some thought. What would my last sermon be? One of it, it probably depends how the end is, how the end is happening. That's true. That's true. It was a real gift to be able to leave Poplar Well. And we had like a going away potluck. And I remember a, a lady who just gave me this, this big embrace. And she was like, you might be the first pastor to have left well here in 20 years. That's wow. And like that was like such a, such an encouragement yeah. because that was something that I'd always hoped to do if I, if I ever left. That's you know? really cool. So when we left Glenland Bible Church to start Four Corners, uh, they uh, they did like a going away service. So I didn't preach. Mm-hmm. In mm-hmm. fact, Kelly gave some words to the team, but I got up to kind of talk on behalf of the team leaving. Yeah. Thinking like, this is going to be cool. This is going to be great. And I wept. Oh, no doubt. I we- And I didn't see it coming at all. Really? And I just started talking. I was, you know, young. I was like, I won't cry. It'll be emotional. I'll be fine. And I got up there and like the first word, I'm this has been <laughs> gone, gone. <laughs> I think so, you're completely justified. And as yeah. someone who has left a family that has meant so much to you. It is one of the most difficult things I've ever yeah. done. So this guy, his name is Daryl uh, Dash. I almost said Daryl Share, but that's the <laughs> button to share it. <laughs> Daryl Dash. That's awesome. He says, here's some things I've learned about this guy's ministry. And Ray Ortland, if you know, he's had, a, he's had a very fruitful and impressive ministry. And so uh, let me just run through these, wondering which ones of these you resonate most with. The first one's love the church. He says, uh, he's quoting Ray Ortland here. Ray Ortland says, Janny, who's his wife and I are really looking forward to Friday night. That says past Friday night, referring to a celebration of their ministry. We're looking forward to it because it's going to give us a chance to say, thank you. Maybe you think we have been a blessing to you. Well, we hope we have. The truth is you've been an immeasurably greater blessing mm. to us. So he clearly loves his church, which sadly, I'm not sure is always the case with pastors. Yeah. Which seems strange, right? Yeah, totally. Like I, and it, I wonder too, if, those pastors know that they're as obvious as they are yeah. because I've definitely heard sermons where like, wow, and not even just pastors, worship pastors, people in leadership where you're like, you don't seem to actually care about the people that you're shepherding. Yeah. I think that actually is much more obvious to the people listening than they realize. Yep. yep. I have, a, I've, I'm a bit of an idealist, but I've always thought the same. I, you know, there's times you're, you're, you're not like there's, you always love your church. There's times you might, might not like them for very short seasons, but I always say, if I ever felt like I don't love my church, I think that's a good sign to go. It's not mm. doing anyone any good. Right. Number right. two, dig deep into the word. Uh, Ray has three graduate degrees, including a PhD, he served as a professor of old Testament at Trinity divinity school. 
Uh, and he goes on to say, I appreciate how he handles the word. He says, I've never seen a pastor who knows the Bible too well, Ray Ortland writes. How about that one? Yeah, I think I think that's really solid. It's hard to overemphasize how significant that is because, again, and you've mentioned this before, too, even just sometimes the day in and day out of being a pastor yeah. can sometimes crowd out the stuff that in a radio studio we're like, oh, this is the most important. Yes. I, I get that the drift is certainly a part of the equation, but I, I think that's that's spot on. Good. Number three, and he just did this really well, pass the baton. In the early days of Emmanuel, Ray made it clear that by the time he reached 70 years of age, he would help transition to a younger pastor. Well, he turned 70 on September 7th and mm. concluded his ministry in Emmanuel a day later. He said, I'm breaking my promise by one day, I supposed. They've already installed their new lead pastor from within. Uh, and so this person goes on to say, I've seen evidence that Ray builds into the lives of younger men, and he's now passing the baton to the next generation and is already praying for many more. Yeah, I actually used this example in a talk a couple of years ago about the uh, the women's Olympic team and how like for four consecutive Olympics, we had the fastest runners, the fastest mm-hmm. individual runners. And we came in third or fourth or disqualified ourselves. And it almost always had to do with the pass of the baton. Oh, it doesn't matter how yep. fast a runner you are, how great your ministry is. If we're not passing the baton well, I think that's a, really a, a big part of Dave Ferguson's hero maker, right? Yes. It's one thing to grow a ministry or a platform. It's another thing entirely to invest in the people that are coming behind so you. So good. Last one is finish well. So Scott Sauls, who we quote on here often, it's almost like he's a third co-host. Uh, <laughs> Scott Sauls is also a pastor in Nashville, so he knows Ray Ortland very well. He tweeted mm-hmm. this about Ray Ortland leaving. He said, reflecting a lot on the fact that I am on the front end of back half of my ministry years. My prayer this morning, <laughs> Father, let me finish the race like Ray Ortland is finishing the race. Even mm-hmm. though Ray will probably outlast me, he models what it means to finish well. I think he, even when I'm younger, even when we're younger, you just want to have in your mind, I want to finish however long it is. I want to finish uh, my pastorate, but to make it even bigger, my life, I yeah. want to finish well. I had a professor in college too. He used to always say, I want to die with my boots on. Mm. We've even tackled this before, yes, like what yes. those final decades look like and how I understand the temptation of like, <laughs> I'm just going to vacation for the final 10. And he was like, Oh, I don't, I don't want the final years of my life to be just simply me taking it easy. I want to I want to die with my boots on doing what God has wired me to do. That's really good. Well, uh, love to know what you think of those about a pastor uh, who deserves some applause, although he would he would not want them <laughs> and who right. apparently has finished well. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about Starbucks. I love Starbucks. I'm drinking got a cup right here. But Starbucks, say, you're doing, practically a commercial form right now. Every time we're <laughs> here, right? Starbucks is doing something really interesting as a new employee benefit that I think you're going to find fascinating. Coming up next year, Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to the Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Sometimes the music is just so soothing. It's just so soothing. Sometimes. You seem real chill. Oh, if you could see our producer's face right now. Yeah. <laughs> Over what? your shoulder. I can't. What's it Through saying? What's his face saying? It's saying, I like this song. Oh, I'm really? Gonna chill out. I'm going to put my feet on the desk. He does that I'm anyway. I'm going to pour myself a nice cold drink, not alcohol, because we're working right now, but it's going to be cold. <laughs> that was a good disclaimer. Not alcohol, because we're working. Because we're working. <laughs> but man, when I get home. <laughs> what? What when you get home, Brian? <laughs> Finish that thought. Still not going to drink the alcohol because this is AM 1160. So here we go. (laughs) Speaking of drink, Starbucks. Oh, I see what you did there. What is your favorite drink at Starbucks? I've never had Starbucks before. You're lying. 
No, not once. No, no. You're, are you seriously telling the truth? I'm not telling the truth. Okay, no, that's good. <laughs> the, fact this is that I, the fact that I actually <laughs> believed it says something about what I think. Yeah, uh, why? How was I almost able to convince you of that? Because you came back with it a second time. Oh, because I doubled yes, down. Doubled not down. because I'm believable. It was the be- double down that came down. <laughs> yeah, because you were like, no, I've never had it. I'm like, really? And you're like, no, never have. I'm like, okay. He wouldn't lie to me twice. <laughs> Apparently I would. Uh, I like black coffee. Wow, really? Yeah. I. Yep. Okay. It's a problem. All right, PJ, favorite Starbucks drink? Uh, if I go to Starbucks, I don't particularly like their coffee, like their black coffee. Usually I stick with that, but I'll get a, uh, a chai tea latte. Wow. I like a chai tea latte. Uh, so my, my friends from India always joke that we call it chai tea, but the word chai is the Hindi word for tea. So, <laughs> so, I was like, so you have a tea tea latte? I'm like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, so I order the same thing every time, a uh, unsweetened black tea lemonade. Boom. Love it. Love and it. I don't think that sentence has ever been followed by a boom before. Although my kids have found when I take them to Starbucks, they have found something there that's essentially a milkshake. Oh, uh, a lot that's there is essentially yeah, a milkshake. It's like without the coffee, right. what would it be? A frappuccino maybe, but hold the coffee. Uh-huh. And I'm like, it's a milkshake. Yeah. And then I'm like, I want some more of your drink. So anyway, Starbucks <laughs> is doing something fascinating. Uh, the, the headline says, is Starbucks to offer mental health services as new employee benefit. Starbucks CEO Kevin Johnson said addressing mental health will be the latest benefit the coffee giant will offer its employees. Hmm. This week in Starbucks, Star, uh, this week in Chicago, Starbucks <laughs> will bring around 12,000 store managers from the U.S. and Canada for a leadership conf- uh, conference. And in conversations and survey with those employees, the coffee giant realized the need to put mental health on the agenda. Hmm. In an interview with Yahoo Finance, Johnson said that the company found that some employees were afraid to reach out to the employee assistance program, so they're working to enhance the program, which provides short-term counseling services. We believe this is a societal problem, and we want to take steps within Starbucks for our partners to break the stigma of mental health, acknowledge that it exists, and do some creative things to provide services uh, for those in need, there will be other announcements to come. Johnson added in a company-wide memo on Thursday. Johnson said that our store managers and field leaders will experience a mental health matters session with a clinical psychologist that will introduce emotional first aid, followed by a discussion about what it means to thrive and develop uh, self-awareness. Lastly, among the benefits currently offered by Starbucks are comprehensive health care for both part-time and full-time employees, equity in the form of stock options, college tuition assistance and family leave benefits, and now mental health services. Mm. Fascinating. I found all this. I think it's really important, too, because I think the key piece is breaking the stigma. I was meeting with a friend just a couple days ago, and part of what he said is so frustrating, especially in the church, is that even when it's talked about out in the open, sometimes a lot of the the sentiment from Christ followers when it comes to mental health is that they just sort of see it as like sadness. Like, Oh, you're just, you're just really sad. Mm. Talk to anyone who's ever dealt with like clinical depression or mental health issues. Like it's not sadness. And when we just equate it as like, Oh, you're just a little more sad than the average person. A little blue today. Right. Which is what I think makes it difficult sometimes to see things like this, you know, get off the ground because people feel like, well, it's, um, you know, it's not it's not that big a deal, really. All, uh, uh, do we need to actually put dollars toward it? Do we need to actually develop something uh, this extensive? And I think Starbucks is saying, yeah, we do. And it's not just something that we want to provide as a resource, but it's something that we, we want to uh, help break the stigma of so that more and more people that actually need the help can get it. 
Yeah, and regardless of what you think about Starbucks, either their drinks or their culture, you've got to be impressed by the fact that they're given they're given health insurance, they're given tuition assistance, they're giving uh, they're giving here this mental health benefit, family leave benefits to part time employees and full time employees. Yeah, uh, and I'm with you, man. Like, and I think that's one good thing we've done on the show is to talk over and over against the stigma of of mental health because unfortunately it happens in the churches more than other places right where it's like oh if you need counseling there's something broken you just need the joy of the lord right you just need to just uh read your bible more and pray more obviously you and i are pro reading your bible and praying more but it's yes. not always the blanket answer over which everything else uh, right. is covered but i do feel like and it's changing a little bit gener- generationally but i would have to think from looking at it, it does feel like the church still lags behind. Yeah. Uh, and there's still a stigma, and there's something that we can learn about um, uh, from uh, organizations like this who are saying, no, what, we, we need to break that stigma. And I wonder how the church can even best do that. Well, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on the show, but you know, today is uh, National Suicide Prevention Day. Oh, and no way. I think it's remarkable to see how many Christian leaders are speaking out on Twitter and publishing ebooks and creating awesome. sermon resources and like doing the hard work of not just saying, Hey, you matter, which is important. It I is. keep saying that, but I think to, to actually create spaces where people can dialogue about the, the depths of what it is that they're wrestling with rather than, Hey, some people get sad sometimes and that's okay. Like yep. that's, we have to do more than just simply, it's okay to not always be great. I think anyone who's really fought these battles would say, that's a good starting point. Yeah. But in my church or in my family, there's still all this stigma surrounding it. And I think we have to do better. And I think one of the things that I love about scripture is that it's filled with stories of people who are not, quote, a little bummed. Yep. We're like quite literally becoming mentally unraveled and... To me, the fact that the Bible would include stories like that of, of these men and women that we hold up yep. sometimes as these heroes of the faith fought like some very serious battles internally, mentally. Why would that make the cut? Yep. Well, I think part of the reason it makes the cut is because um, the Bible is showing us that, listen, we're not going to hide the stories of these battles and you don't have to hide yours either. Yep. And I think that's such an important thing for us to continue to lean in toward. And I'm sure you've preached on depression or these stories in the Bible, but I'm always amazed when you just touch on it in a church service. Uh, it's not like a pushback against it. It's like this opening of a door for people like, Oh, we can talk about it. Let me tell you my story. Right. Let right. me tell you my story. If you're like, Oh, I don't see anyone who's depressed in my church. There's something unhealthy going on because they're there. <laughs> they're, yeah. They're right. there. Uh, and so we and you have to, to open your eyes. We do need to figure out a way. And you, you've been helpful in the in the idea that, you know what, it's also important of how you speak about it and who's leading that conversation. And that's it's always right. the pastor up there going, hey, if you're depressed, come talk to me. Like, that's not always helpful either. Right. And that's that's where I think we in the last couple of years, we the kind of collective, we have gotten better because, like you said, sometimes the sentiment has been, hey, and if you're struggling let us know. Yes. And the more that I actually talk to people. I've who, said that before, by right. the way. And, yep. and, and with the best of intentions, yes. I'm not even knocking that. But the more that I actually like share coffee and meals with people who have been on the other side of that, they're very gracious to say, hey, we appreciate that. But sometimes we need you to be m- more proactive mm. because when you're in the deep downward spiral of depression, the last thing you're thinking to do is to raise a hand to ask for help yeah. because you're so caught in your own head. And I think, OK, so we need to do a better job as Christ followers together to not just, well, if you don't raise a hand, we'll assume you're okay, but to actually be more proactive in how we come alongside people. That's really good. So uh, cheering on Starbucks here, but I think their message as to why they're doing it's really helpful for all of us. How do we break that stigma culturally, but also within the church? 
uh, that's going to be so important uh, presently, but also going forward into the future. Well, coming up next year on The Common Good, uh, something we've enjoyed doing recently is just finding some tweets that we love and discussing them. We're going to do that coming up next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thank you for joining us today. You can continue the conversation at The Common Good Radio Show on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, and on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Well, uh, sometimes I, I feel like you and I are stumbling into segments like, oh, yeah, we should do that more often. <laughs> and uh, if someone's out there going, no, you guys do stumble in these segments. But yeah, yeah, they're like, amen. What I meant is regular segments. <laughs> uh, and one of the things I think we've begun doing more and more is just finding tweets that, that kind of get our minds working. You know, mm-hmm. we're on Twitter a lot. And people write some uh, some interesting things. So you might be out there going, isn't that segment just Scott Saul's tweeted today? <laughs> You're like, yep. Uh, but uh, oftentimes we've got just tweets that you and I are saving and, and putting on here uh, and got some of those today. Let's start with this one. Someone by the name of Dan White. He's an author and co-author of Church as Movement uh, and coach at V3 Movement. Or I'm not familiar with V3 Movement, but uh, you can follow him at danwhitejr.com. He tweeted this. Uh, In my city, I often meet folks raised in progressive households that now in their 30s find conservatism as stabilizing. I also regularly meet folks raised conservative that now find progressivism as liberating. I rarely rarely meet anyone who gets off the seesaw. And then he asks the uh, $64,000 question. Why? Mm Mm-hmm. So uh, what do you think about this? Is he right? And uh, how would you answer the why question? I have absolutely experienced this. Like I read it and thought, is he in my head? (laughs) Just just earlier this week, I'd had conversations that represent both of his findings there. I like the first tweet. So uh, Justin Bryans, I don't know how to say it. Sure. He says, because neither approach is comprehensive enough to engage all of life Mm. because both approaches are by nature pendulum points. Oh, I think that is such a and you've mentioned it before, not to overly quote Scott Sauls, but he even talks about when we're really following Jesus, we're going to upset people on both the right and the left. He's both more liberal and more conservative than we really give him credit for most of the time. And I like the way that he says it because it doesn't actually engage all of life. And so the pendulum he seems to be implying is almost inevitable, right? The, the idea of conservatism being stabilizing, but also progressivism feeling liberating I think that makes sense that we would react to the thing that we feel like we're deficient in, but that's not always the case. I know plenty of people that were raised conservative that are conservative adults and that were raised progressive and are progressive adults. So it's it's obviously not a catch all, but it does make sense though, that as you start to grow into both your faith and your politics, there there would be a part of you that say, are there some vacancies here? Are there some holes that I need to, so you venture into some new territory, you read some new books, you listen to new podcasts. And sometimes that results in, a massive switch. Sometimes it, I think, can happen a lot. Actually, yeah. it results in a more moderate landing zone. Yeah. We're like, okay, I have some liberal positions here, but I still hold some conservative positions here. The part of the thing that I find so interesting is I've never really heard somebody that maybe we would call a fundamentalist self-identify as a fundamentalist. Right. Nobody thinks they are. They just think they're right. Right. They think they're right. (laughs) Totally. In the same way that no one's like, I'm a flaming liberal. Like that's those are usually categories and. And adjectives kind of prescribed by an opposing worldview, which makes, I think, how we how we wrestle through these things all the more complicated. Absolutely. So 
Uh, I'm looking at some of these other replies to his tweet. One person said, I wonder if we see all the faults of what we grew up with and then decide that the opposite must be better. Huh. Uh, a little then, grass is greener kind yeah. of. And then here's another one that I'll read to you. Uh, this guy, Ryan Emmerich, wrote, moving to extremes is easier than moving to the middle. In the middle, you have to value people from both extremes. In the middle, you get attacked from both extremes. That kind of goes back to that Scott Saul's tweet. Yeah, right, like, right. right. Uh, if you're not getting arrows from both sides, then you're doing something wrong. Um, but I've seen this, man. I went. I grew up conservative, and I grew up. In, I went to a conservative Christian school, went to Wheaton College, uh, and it would still be pretty conservative compared to most people, but... Uh, the people in my life who like, you know, grew up in a house where you could never touch alcohol, like alcohol would send you straight to hell or right. couldn't watch these movies. Uh, I don't know any of them who've, ha- who've kept that in there hmm. now that they're adults. And in fact, sometimes you're like, huh, I feel like you're might be teetering on the edge of drinking a bit much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or doing right. A bit much. Right. Like you might have swung this pendulum way too far. Hmm. Uh, so a lot of that people who grew up fundamentalists, like you say, tend to swing towards towards uh, liberty and people who uh uh, the other one that's really interesting to me is the people that he says who were raised progressive. He's now saying I'm finding them to becoming more conservative. That's the interesting one. Really? I get I guess maybe it's because how I was raised, but I could get the more conservative one wanting to loosen the reins. Yeah. But he's saying the people who grew up with the really loose reins kind of getting a little more a little more tight. I, fi- I find that one probably needs some more explanation and, and very interesting. See, that one doesn't surprise me at all. Is I think that, right? that, yeah, I think that makes total sense. I don't know that I would necessarily use the imagery of reins. Okay. Like conservative is tight reins and progressive Good is point. loose reins. Good point. You know, maybe we'll tackle that might this. might be one aspect of it at right, times, maybe. but not yeah. altogether. Well, I saw an article earlier last week. Maybe maybe we'll talk about it later in the week because it was, it was written from a conservative theological position about how to watch out for progressive Christianity. And my friend shared it, and then a bunch of my progressive friends started commenting, saying, hey, I appreciate the sentiment. I don't agree with any of these definitions of progressivism. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, okay, well, that's probably worth, worth noting. But and I don't know if you know this or not. So Dan White Jr., uh, who wrote this original tweet, has written a bunch of books, and he writes for a bunch of publications. But he just wrote a book called Love Over Fear, Facing Monsters, Befriending Enemies, and Healing Our Polarized World, which that makes it sound like, someone I'd love to have on the show, by the way, because his, do that. and the book is fantastic. We've actually bought oh, read it. Yeah. We've used some of the ideas for an upcoming sermon series. His, his capacity to kind of see exactly what he's writing in this tweet is unbelievable. And it's not just like those guys and us guys. And, you know, David Fitch wrote the uh, us versus them book that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. I think this kind of work is so needed now more than ever because I think our polarization is actually getting worse. Mm. And like like the guy that you just read, the middle space is not only hard to achieve, it's not even mm. it's not even attractive in most circles because I think the extremes are what tend to we think get the get the press or get things moving. And the moderate space, the common space even, sometimes feels I think unhelpful to people. It's good. And now he does make a distinction later in some a conversation with somebody further down. He says, I wasn't talking about politics. Right. Uh, I'm speaking about religious conservatism or progressivism. Yes. And then he goes on to say, I've cataloged my research of 122 conversations in the last seven years for my next book. I'm picking up on a pattern. <laughs> oh, interesting. <laughs> it's going to be a fascinating book. So, But that is interesting because I do think people who grow up in very conservative political homes probably tend to stay. They're probably switch less likely. It's probably mm. less like I wonder. I'm sure that's going to be part of his book. Um, 
That's really interesting. And then somebody later asked, what do you think being off the seesaw looks like? And he goes, I can't fit that in the Twitter feed, my friend. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's a wise response. <laughs> yeah, it, there is something here to be said about the answer being in the middle and that being the hardest uh, place to live. What do you, uh, with the minute we have left, what do you think if someone's like, I want to live in the middle, what does that look like? Is it just engaging people on both sides? How does that work? I think it's got to be more than engaging. I think we have to take honest stock of the streams of information that we're taking in. I think a lot of people are like, oh, I want to engage, but I'm only ever reading people from my camp or people who yep. already look and talk and act and think and believe like I do, which is the easiest, right? Yes. Regardless of what tradition you're raised in, it would make sense that you're most comfortable with, most familiar with just at least. Them. right? Yeah. So to to ask, not just engage to like have conversation like we're having, but to actually say, hey, what are three books that you would recommend if, if, it, if you wanted me to better understand your position or your background or your context? Because the arguments are already happening. Some are good, some are not so good. But what I think is lacking is like a deeper understanding of how did you even come to that position? Yeah. Because it just becomes so easy for us to like create these caricatures of the other person. And we've done other segments on this particular truth. We're very bad at guessing what the other person actually believes. Yes. So I think yes. it has to start with reading and engagement and sharing a cup of coffee. Yeah. Sometimes Twitter is not an outrageous place. Sometimes it yeah. gets you thinking and you're like, okay, that was really good. So totally. if you've got tweets, you can, you can retweet them to us, right? Is that how it works? Sure. Sure. <laughs> at Common Good Talk on Twitter. At Common Good Talk. Well, for Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you all. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Grateful to have you joining us today. Uh, you can continue to follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show and Twitter at Common Good Talk. Well, we posted an article on Facebook uh, that on our Facebook page that is kind of blowing up the internet, the Christian internet at least. The, the Christian. Christian internet. Oh no. <laughs> Christ internet. <laughs> That's funny. That is not the way I meant that to come out, but <laughs> you and I probably both follow on Twitter, you know, lots of different, uh, you know, pastors, speakers, whatever else. And there was uh, this article that came out of Politico uh, yesterday uh, that was a bit of a bombshell, if you will. Uh, and, uh, it's really long. So we print out articles here that we want to discuss that are usually two pages, three pages. (laughs) This one printed out at 19 pages. Uh, and so I would encourage you to go out and read this on your own. Uh, but it is, uh, all about Jerry Falwell Jr. at Liberty University. And the title of the article says this, someone's got to tell the freaking truth. Jerry Falwell's aides break their silence. It says as more than two dozen current and former Liberty University officials describe a culture of fear and self-dealing at the largest Christian college in the world. And that's what makes this such a big deal. Right. Jerry Falwell is not only a huge uh, backer of Donald Trump and very out there, but more importantly to this conversation, uh, he is the president of the largest uh, Christian college in the country. Uh, a lot of it online, but also residential, just an enormous and, and then taking over for his dad after his dad passed right. away, Jerry Falwell Sr., who is the starter of the moral majority. Right. And uh, that kind of stuff. So 
Uh, let me just read a couple things. Again, this is 19 pages long, uh, <laughs> written by a guy by the name of Brandon Abrozino. Uh, and again, you can find it all over the internet right now, but it's specifically at politico.com. It came out yesterday. Uh, and this is kind of the, the background of this is just a lot of his insiders, people speaking off the record out of fear of retribution, yeah. uh, but kind of opening a door into what's been going on. Uh, at Liberty University. It says this, more than two dozen current and former high-ranking Liberty University officials and close associates of Falwell uh, spoke to the author or provided documents for this article, opening up for the first time in an institution so intimately associated with the Falwell family about why they've experienced, about what they've experienced and why they don't think he's the right man to lead Liberty University or serve as a figurehead in the Christian uh, conservative movement. And let me read one other, uh, two other parts. Uh, here's one of the money quotes, if you will, no pun intended. Uh, one of the senior university officials with inside knowledge of Liberty's finances said, we're not a school, we're a real estate hedge fund. We're not educating, we're buying real estate every year and taking students' money to do it. Uh, and one more thing here, it says, Liberty employees detailed other instances of Falwell's behavior that they see as a falling short of the standard of conduct they expect from conservative Christian leaders, from partying at nightclubs to graphically discussing his sex life with employees to electioneering that makes uneasy even those who fondly remember the heyday of the late Reverend Jerry Falwell Sr., the school's founder, and Falwell Jr.'s father uh, and his moral majority. So we could do the whole show of just reading this. Yeah. Uh, but as you get a taste of this article, um, I I have this mixture of not being surprised and being really saddened by it at the same time. I've seen a couple of people post exactly this, and every single time I think that's what I would have said is I'm zero point zero percent surprised, <laughs> and that does make me sad. It makes me sad that I am not surprised. We've not really gone in on Liberty all that much yep. in the uh, eight or nine months we've had the show, but the couple of times that we have, you know, some, you know, sometimes we'll take a deeper dive even after we've done a segment and it is, it is uh, consistent. I'll say that. Yes, and that, is. that's unfortunate. I want to read a couple of our comments on the Facebook page because I thought they're really good. Uh, my brother actually said, oversight is key to success. The Catholic church is currently in the process of creating a layperson branch to both serve and hold clergy to task. It appears some version of, uh, of outside governance would serve liberty here, which I think is actually something that we've talked about in the church context. Um, but in any organization this large, though, it's kind of insane to me that, I mean, again, it's 19 pages, so you really get into the weeds. But that's the part that kind of surprises me that so much of this was allowed to continue for so long. And how many people and these are like smart, accomplished people who remained in fear, who just didn't speak yeah. up because, well, this could cost me my job. So here's here's kind of where some of the comments uh, really pick up steam a little bit. David Cook said, I'm not a fan, but Politico is a, rel a reliable source. While we as Christians, um, we do need to hold each other accountable. I'm not sure this is biblical. The question is legitimate, so not knocking that, but taking one source and then bashing fellow believers is not proper. Mm -hmm. uh, Carlin schools, in my experience, keep the application money. So I, I'm not quite sure where you would land with that, like is sharing the story, doing this story right now at all. Is there any sort of conflict for you? And like, oh man, we, we just really need to be praying for the fall wells and the school and not be talking about it. Cause it's not our business. Is there any sense that you feel that when diving into stuff like this? Uh, there's always a little bit of that. Like, uh, okay. Are we just, you know, is it, it's easy to take shots when you read stuff like this, but I don't, you know, we live in a day where we yell fake news and I, I don't feel that way about this because it's been reported for, 
months and months and months. And again, the insiders can be disgruntled people, but they're still with inside knowledge. And like you said, this seems to be consistent with a lot of stuff we hear. And this is why you and I are both like, man, you asked me if I was surprised when I read this. And I said, I think I was surprised by the depth of our, of stuff in it, uh, about the depth of um, questionable behavior, the depth of fear. All these people in here talk about it. it's a dictatorship, they say. Everybody is scared for their life. Everybody walks around in fear. Uh, fear is probably the most powerful weapon. And I don't know. While we haven't done a ton of liberty stories, we how many stories are we going to have to do in which pastors or presidents of schools or people in power are just wielding that power in complete non-Christ-like ways right. uh, to advance whatever agenda they have that it is? And this feels like that on steroids right now. But it's, right. it's James McDonald. It's Bill Hybels. It's over and over. And we just keep having to talk about them. And I guess we're going to have to keep talking about them for a lot longer uh, because people like this. Uh, they do wield a lot of power. Like, again, I would encourage you to read this. There's stuff about money in here. There's stuff about um, inappropriate things that students aren't allowed to do that he appears to be doing. There, there's just all sorts of craziness. So, yeah, <clears throat> there. I'm sure there's going to be retra- not retractions. There's going to be defenses coming out about what was wrong about this article. I'm sure that's coming. Uh, I just think it it appears at first blush to be too deeply reported to be altogether false in a hit job. Yeah, right. So John Armstrong, who I feel like we brought up yesterday and we had on the show a week or two ago, uh, I sent this to him and uh, I just I just think his voice and perspective and things like this is really helpful. So here's here's what he posted uh, on his Facebook page. He said, sadly, this report needed to be seen and read by those connected to Liberty University. The author writes, uh, but these new revelations speak to rising discontent with Falwell's stewardship. The people interviewed for this article include members of Liberty's board of trustees, senior university officials, and rank-and-file staff members who work closely with Falwell. They are reluctant to speak out. There's, uh, there's no organized open dissent to Falwell on campus, but they said they see it as necessary to save Liberty University and the values it once stood for. They said they believe in the Christian tradition and the conservative politics at the heart of Liberty's mission. Many knew Jerry Falwell Sr. and remember him with clear affection. The day that the man died was the day I lost a father. One current university official said all count themselves as conservatives. Many are strong supporters of Donald Trump. And so this is John's words now. He says, I will never forget when I read my first interview with Jerry Falwell Sr. in a long ago defunct Eternity magazine. This was many decades ago. I believed then and still do that Jerry Falwell Sr., was a decent person. I disagreed with him profoundly, but I do not doubt his overall integrity. But in this interview, and remember he was a fairly young man just beginning to build his church and TV radio ministry, he said that it bothered him to spend so much time, quote, raising the money to keep all this going. I said to myself and to God in prayer, God, help me to never have to raise money to build a personal ministry and keep it going. Mm. I do not doubt that Falwell Sr. had good motives, but the sowing and reaping here is fairly obvious to many of us from the outside. His public political marriage to Donald Trump should have left us all aghast, but many tried to explain and defend him away. I could not and will not. Now I know why I could not more clearly after reading this very sad account of breaking the silence. Yes, mm. breaking the silence is sometimes necessary, even if it is not desirable to do so. And I thought that those, those are wise words from a pastor who, who has seen some stuff in his time. Absolutely. I would encourage you to read the article because there's so much in it. There's just so much in it. Uh, but it is a clear, um, well-reported article, you know, and hopefully it holds up. Uh, but it is uh, of power, of money. Uh, of hypocrisy 
And we've got to do better in the Christian world. We just have to do better in our churches, in our institutions, especially with those who wield some sort of power. Because Christ, uh, he never wielded his power in ways like this, but instead quite the opposite. Uh, And so, yes, we need to be praying for, like you said, the school, the Falwells. But there needs to be a day of reckoning, I think, uh, over there. Because this uh, this is the biggest Christian school in the country, and it's a big deal. Yeah. Well, uh, today, uh, keeping a heavy topic going, but uh, one that is necessary today is uh, Suicide Prevention Day. And you and I want to have a little bit of a talk about that uh, and uh, how the church can be can be tackling this topic well. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad you're joining us today. I feel like I just needed a big deep breath after the old Jerry Falwell story last yeah, time. But it's man, probably, it's just so important. Yeah. I just I'm tired of doing stories like that. But some way, in some ways, I think that's one of the values we can have as a radio show is to be like, hey, the Christian world's kind of dark out there in some corners, and we want to help you see it and like try to call people to some sort of action. I guess. Well, and hopefully to give people at least starting points for engaging with it, because I think sometimes the feedback is like. I wouldn't have known about this if you guys didn't say anything, right, right. which I totally get. Like the the appeal of ignorance is certainly there, but I think it's it's important that we we actually are talking about these things because I think that's how change actually happens, yep. and it is uncomfortable. But I think we got to go for it sometimes. I do too. I do too. And I played bass in Appeal of Ignorance. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> wow, wowie! Yesterday, Ian told me I don't really do those jokes well about the, but I got that one. I feel like I nailed that one. Anyway, speaking of issues that in the Christian world we like to appeal to ignorance, if you will, and kind of ignore, mm. uh, and we touched on it earlier in today's show, but as you pointed out, uh, today is Suicide Prevention Day. Yeah. And uh, again, in the Christian world, as we talked about in hour one, uh, historically, we have not done a good job as the church, uh, just kind of big C church, of acknowledging that Christians struggle with mental illness that Christians even go to the point of committing suicide uh, and that this is something that's a problem in our world, but is equally a problem within our churches. I saw on Twitter today, a guy that I follow was like, could you pray for me today? Hmm. Uh, I'm doing the funeral of a really godly Jesus loving woman who killed herself today. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like, uh, and, and I know there are times or there are some denominations, but also there are some times in our Christian world where we're like, well, those two are antithetical. They can't go together. Hmm. Uh, but as we learn more and more about mental illness and we're more uh, hopefully honest about what's going on in the church, mental illness to the point of suicide is a big deal within the church. And when we don't acknowledge it, it makes it that much worse. Yeah. Uh, and so on this suicide prevention day, what are some of your thoughts about um, just the reality of the struggle, even within the church and what the church could be doing maybe better to uh, to help lead uh, the charge on this? I think one of the things that, has been frustrating for a while is not just that the church doesn't talk about it, but that we often are the ones that are perpetuating some of the stigma. Yeah. You know, I was, I was talking with a friend earlier in the week and he was saying, it's not sadness. Depression Mm. is not sadness. And we, we talk to people sometimes and sort of this like pull yourself out of it kind of mentality. And he said, as someone who's been on the receiving end of that, that's not helpful. And Mm. so sometimes even churches feel like they, they are doing the good work by talking about it and then saying, Hey, if you need help, raise a hand, which is part of it, you know, yeah. like to be a safe space. But he's like, I don't often those things are said by people that have never really had serious bouts of depression of any kind or suicidal ideation or like that. 
when he talks about it as an illness, he uh, he's like, you wouldn't talk to someone with a broken arm and be like, all right, start throwing the ball around. And you're like, no, oh, it's, it's broken. It needs to, mm-hmm. needs to heal right now. And he's like, and when it comes to brain stuff, I think sometimes the church hasn't been great about articulating or even assuming a posture of listening, mm-hmm. right? Like, hey, you, Walk us through a little bit what it's like to be in your world. And I, I want to read a couple of statistics because I, I think it helps frame the whole conversation because maybe someone's listening thinking, is this really that big of a deal? Is that big of an issue? So here, here are some of the um, national statistics and then I'll read some of the global ones. Uh, suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. for all ages. Uh, every day, approximately 123 Americans die by suicide. That's every single day. There is one death by suicide in the United States every 12 minutes. Mm. Depression affects 20 to 25% of Americans age 18 plus. Suicide takes the lives of over 44,000 Americans every single year. The highest rates of suicide in the U.S. are among white American Indians and Alaskan Natives. Only half of all Americans experience an episode of major depression Depression receive, receive actual treatment. But 80 to 90% of the people that seek treatment for depression are treated successfully using therapy and or medication. An estimated quarter million people each year become suicide survivors. And there is one suicide for every estimated 25 suicide attempts. Oh, that's interesting. So that to me is like an absolute, if, if that statistic doesn't at least open our eyes a little bit to the need for us to actually engage with this. And now let me just share just briefly yeah, go ahead. Yeah, a couple go of the ahead. global statistics. Nearly 800,000 people die by suicide in the world each year, which is roughly one death every 40 seconds. Mm. Every 40 seconds on a global scale, someone takes their life. Suicide wow. Wow. is the second leading cause of death in the world for those ages 15 to 24. And depression is the leading cause of disability worldwide. Wow. So at the very least, regardless of your theology or your politics or your philosophy of science or medicine, it's an issue and it's something that we need to talk about. And it's something that it seems that most people's experience has not necessarily been that the church has been at the forefront of creating safe space for conversation, for dialogue. A lot of times, and we talked about this before, things like therapy and medication are really unfortunately stigmatized. And so, yeah, so people continue yeah. to suffer quietly silently, not necessarily knowing who they can turn to. And uh, there's a pastor and a, a blogger and an author named uh, Jared Wilson. He launched a website called Anthem of Hope, anthemofhope.org. Wow. I would highly recommend if you or anyone you know is interested in learning more, go to anthemofhope.org because there's all sorts of resources and phone numbers and stories and content that gets a really well curated beginning place for okay so how how can we begin to understand this a little bit better yeah uh one thing like you said i remember being in youth ministry and realizing uh the depth like the, the increase of uh anxiety and depression in our students and yeah. as now as a dad with kids that age that's really scary and uh you know you might be out there like you're a church person you might be out there and like isn't just the answer jesus and jesus is the answer uh, but sometimes we use that answer very flippantly, <laughs> like, oh, just go to G-. And then that becomes not the answer. That becomes more of a burden. Like, OK, no one wants to understand. Like the answer is dig into the weeds with people. And and this is why I love that you talked about this hope chat. Um, this what was the name of the website again? Anthem of Anthem hope. Of hope. Thank yeah. you. Uh, because oftentimes as a pastor or as a dad. Like yeah. there comes a level of stuff that I'm not qualified to deal with, but yeah, sometimes absolutely. as a pastor, we're like, well, we're supposed to be able to deal with all of it. Just point them here and do this X, Y, and Z. 
Uh, no, we need these sort of resources. We need these sort of resources, especially when people are literally at the point of like, I'm thinking of taking my life. Right. That is nothing to be, to be like just kind of discarded. Like we've got to go to these places of hope. Yes. Uh, and that's why these, uh, these are so important. Well, I was really proud and we had them in the studio actually when our student ministry hosted an event called when silence isn't golden, because this is something that our students are absolutely grappling with and experiencing yep. firsthand. And, like just even creating those spaces for us to say, Hey, we have a lot to learn here because there are still, unfortunately churches that will articulate sometimes, you know, subtly that depression is a sin. Yes. So if I, if I'm hearing that and I'm sitting in your pews, um, that's so damning because it's the thing that I would love to have fixed inside Mm -hmm. of me. And Mm -hmm. you're telling me that it's my, so this idea that, um, loving Jesus will just cure that, uh, I think is so misguided and unfortunate. And I think, one of the things that I've always really appreciated about scripture is that there's, it chooses to include all sorts of stories of like deep sorrow and grief and brokenness. And like, if it were up to you or I, and we were putting together the book, we'd probably scrub those parts out. Right. Yeah. yeah. So like, why would we have stories? We want to make of, this appealing to people. Right. This yeah. is going to lead the movement, but you have Job and Jeremiah and all these things they are like glimpses into like some real heartache, some real struggle. And I think, all right, so if the Bible doesn't hide those stories, maybe we don't have to hide them either. And I think our churches need to reflect that. And it's one thing to say, Hey, if you need help, raise a hand, let us know. Mm-hmm. Every person I've, I've known that <laughs> that struggles with like clinical depression, they like sort of appreciate the sentiment, but like it has to be way more than that. Kind of one of these nice, good try though. Right. Thanks for acknowledging but it. I'm but I'm so caught in my head, like yeah. raising my hand is the last thing I want to do. So how do we be more proactive as, as the body of believers yeah. to actually create space for dialogue and to learn more. And I just think, I just think we need to do better. And if you're listening and you're in the midst of that, um, please know that you are loved, that you are seen, yeah. that you are known and that, um, the world is better with you in it, yeah. that you matter and you matter to really us, you matter well, to God. And I think we, we have to keep reminding each other that even if we don't think there's an issue. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I said this in the first hour, but I remember one time I preached, we were going through uh, Elijah, I believe. And, uh, and I preached about depression and it wasn't, I remember being pleasantly surprised. This is a weird way to put it of the number of people who like that gave them license to talk about it. Yeah, and right. it was all these people, not just thinking, but like, I, oh, now I can talk about this. That's right. And going, wow, they didn't feel like they could talk about that before. That's and right. The church needs to be a place where we're wrestling with these types of things. Yep, 100%. I just recommend one more time, yep. anthem anthemofhope.org. Check it out. There's a great place just to get more information, just as a starting point to kind of better understand uh, all that's going on here. And I would say if you're somebody who does not deal with mental health issues and suicide prevention day, and you're like, oh, I don't even get it. Use it as an opportunity to pray for those who do struggle. Yeah, uh, that absolutely. That is an opportunity. Well, uh, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Coming up next, we're going to talk about kind of a happy story uh, about some baseball fans uh, who met each other for a very special occasion. That is next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Been kind of a heavy day. Yeah. <laughs> One yeah. of those days, but uh, it's an acknowledgement that not everything is always happy and cheery. Uh, and that, you know, we try to be honest on this show, if nothing else. We try to have laughs. We try to tackle hard things, a little bit of all of that. So uh, we're, we're glad you're, con- you're joining us. If you missed any of the show, you can always find the podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts. Um, uh, we'll go ahead and subscribe, rate, review. Uh, we appreciate that. And we appreciate all of those uh, who do listen to the podcast, whether you listen at double the speed or half the speed or regular speed. 
we do like to hear from those of you who podcast. We were joking earlier that uh, increasingly we have people in our lives who are like, I really enjoy your podcast. And we're like, it is a radio show, you know, <laughs> <laughs> tomato, tomato. Exactly. But uh, however we get the listeners, that is fine by us. So uh, kind of a happy story as we start to get head towards closing the show out. Uh, out of Milwaukee, heartache for one family became the gift of life for another. One year after a Cedarburg man received a heart transplant, his journey came full circle when he met his donor's family. As an aside, the fact that they can just transplant hearts to me is the most unbelievable thing. It is pretty it is crazy sci-fi, isn't it? Think yeah. about uh, he said, I've been blessed with a great match, Tom Schroeder said. It's been one year since Schroeder received a second chance at life. It was very special, like we were soul brothers. In need of a heart transplant, Tom spent 50 days in the hospital before don- donors found a match last August. His new heart came from 32-year-old Joshua Holland. Uh, three months after his surgery, Tom wrote to his donor's family and received a six-and-a-half-page letter back. It was entitled, My Heart's First Journey. Oh, Among the many things Tom learned about Joshua, he discovered his donor was a Chicago Cubs fan. It was only fitting that Tom, a Milwaukee Brewers fan, would meet Joshua's family at Miller Park ahead of Saturday's Brewers-Cubs game. Wow. Uh, he's embodying my uncle. I see my uncle in him, uh, Jersey Wilkerson, Joshua's niece said. Wilkerson joined Schroeder to throw out the ceremonial first pitch. She threw to Craig Council while Schroeder threw to Cubs manager Joe Madden. It's incredibly touching, and to be honest, I've never seen that in all of my training. For the donor family to be reunited with the recipient, said Eric Weiss, the heart surgeon. They set aside a stored rivalry to enjoy a new lifelong bond. He said, I'll be watching the game with my new family. Schroeder said, there's so much in that story. Again, just the fact that they can even do that. Yeah. But the mix of just sadness and joy and what a what a cool story. It's got to just be a surreal moment and a really heavy moment, a really joyful moment uh, when they finally met each other. What, do we know what happened to Joshua? I don't know. That no. does, it, I'm wondering if it purposely doesn't say in the article, but yeah. he could. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. But he passed away young, at 32 years old. Yeah. Uh, and it it raises again the need uh, for uh, organ donors. I'm always amazed after somebody dies, whether it be tragically or uh, after illness or whatever, and they're able to 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 use their organs uh, and the number of people it saves. I it always feels like. It doesn't take away the sadness of losing somebody, but it adds just a little touch of like meaning might not be the right word, but like a little ray of hope in the in the darkness of that. Uh, and that seems to be the case, at least a little bit in this story yeah. uh, with this family. makes them, I'm sure, no less sad that they lost a 32 year old family member. Right. But uh, that his death came some good came out of it is probably um Somewhat comforting. I've I've seen other videos online in the last couple of years of people being reunited with donors, and specifically one that I saw recently was another heart donor story. Yeah, and the guy traveled across the country to meet. Uh, I think it was the person that his son's heart was donated to, oh. and then they brought a, a stethoscope, and he like, oh my god, was listening to his heart, and the guy just broke down crying. It's so moving because I mean, it sounds like a heart, you know, like if if you want to get really practical, like oh, a heart sounds like a heart, but here's a a dad, I believe it's a dad listening to his son's heartbeat in someone else's body and just being so moved that, you know, they were able to, to help in this way. And I think it's a pretty remarkable glimpse into how good humanity can be, you know, like there yeah. is something about all the stuff that we see in the news and all the stuff that bogs us down and the stuff that we grab about in the commute and the stuff that just, you know, that kind of hope and humanity restored moment is why we do stories like this because 
I think it actually is really important for us to remember there's still so many people doing great things yeah. in the world and people's lives being saved and families being restored and like that kind of stuff often doesn't make headlines and it doesn't make the evening news and it doesn't, you know what I mean? It's not clickbaity, but it, I think it's worth celebrating because it, it's easy, especially, you know, talking today about how easy it is to just sort of look at all the darkness in the world Yeah, to remember that there's all sorts of beauty and light still happening around. So I think that's, I think it's important to hold on to. Yeah. There's so much, that's a good way to put it. And we've just been doing it in this. So just so much darkness. Um, and it's so easy. This, the whole concept of donor, uh, organ donorship is so easy to do, right? Like, I think you still do it when you get your driver's license. Am yeah. I right about that? I'm yeah. speaking a little bit out of turn, but, uh, it's so easy to do and heaven forbid something happens to you, a family member, uh, that you can, uh, that, that, that tragedy can be used to provide life for people, uh, is so is so important. I also just like as a baseball fan, I kind of like that they like our, our rival team uh, fans here. Right, right. There's something kind of sweet and funny about that. And that the, the teams were like, yeah, come out and throw the first pitch. Like I go to baseball games all the time with my kids. And like, it's always like, uh, I can imagine being there and they're like, Hey, throwing out the first pitch today. It's always like the CEO of this company or right. this and the, but to be like, Hey, here's the story. And both managers are out here. I don't right. know. There's something deeply moving about this story uh, that is, uh, yeah, yeah. There's something, uh, like I just said, there's something deeply moving about this story. I, I think uh, stories are so important because it's one of the one of the few things, I think stories and music are one of the few things that actually bind all of us together that always, always resonate with every human everywhere. Like there is something innate in all of us that hear story that like gives depth and meaning to what it is that we're looking at. Like if we had just watched the clip, not knowing any of this of someone throwing out our first pitch, we're like, Oh, why are we watching this? What's the, you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's something. And I shared on Sunday, I was kind of trying to illustrate this idea. And I showed this picture on the screen of this, this little drawing of a flower and a butterfly. Okay. And I said, um, look at this picture. What does this evoke in you? Like, what do you feel? Like pay attention to your, your heart, your emotions. And you could tell everyone kind of had like blank expressions. They're like, what's Ian doing right now? Right. <laughs> I said, what if I told you that this picture was drawn by a five-year-old girl named Heidi who had a terminal illness, and this was the last thing that she ever drew before she died? Oh, wow. I said, now how do you feel? Now what emotions are you? And it was, it was instant. And that was a 12-second story. Like that's the only context I gave was here's the thing behind the thing. Here's what we're first looking at is just a, a you know, clearly a – a child drawn picture of a flower, but yeah. now you know the context. Now you know the background. And I, my point was kind of like, we all have a story, but we often go throughout our lives. Like, oh, it's just the guy that cut me off in traffic or it's just the person that's taking too long in the grocery line. Like we yeah. so often just see them as the thing they're doing right now, rather than that person lost a spouse or that person has a parent in hospice or that person is struggling to get pregnant. You know what I mean? Like everybody has this context, this background that we, we know nothing about. Yeah. Every person you meet is fighting a battle. We know nothing about. And I think, that's why it's so important to tell these stories because at least for me, it helps elevate the significance of like, Oh, and everyone has a story. And when we just go a million miles a minute yeah. and we don't actually see people the way that God sees them, it's so easy for them to just become figures that yeah. are like in our way of accomplishing our dreams. And I think to hit pause and actually see people for who they are is, is really important. That's good. That's good. I, I just, yeah, John is waving at me. Go no, ahead. John. You're, uh, you're asking about what happened to Joshua Holland. Um, I couldn't really find it anywhere except for WISN. Uh, it says he took his own life mm. last August. Well, that's hard. It's, wow. 
but but again, come, bringing good out of it, I suppose, uh, like I said, brings a ray of hope. I wonder what it would be like to be, to be to be Tom Schroeder, the guy who got a heart. Like I've always wondered that when you hear these stories, where literally you get a second chance at life, right. like a new organ or whatever. Right. Man, yeah, he was in the hospital fifty days, right? And you just to try to live up to that gift, I think, would be pretty unbelievable. Like just the second chance of life. That's got to be really deeply. Uh, it's clearly life changing to be yeah, like, oh my right. gosh, I got a second chance at life. Yeah, I, I imagine too, you begin to see life as something you steward a whole lot more, right? When you're staring down the, the barrel of yeah. maybe, maybe losing it, and you're like, okay, this heart literally wasn't my own. Yeah. I, I want to honor this well. I think I think you're totally right. Yeah, something biblical in there about getting a new heart, right? <laughs> something biblical. Well, we wanted to pass that story along just to, uh, to give you a, a ray of sunshine about good can even come out of the bad and uh, also... Uh, what must it been like for this guy, Tom Schroeder? I hadn't really thought of I don't normally think in terms of the one who got the organ. Usually it's the mm-hmm. one who gives. Uh, but that's pretty uh, that that's uh, that's pretty uh, overwhelming to think about. And uh, hopefully we can all take on that perspective a little bit. Well, we're going to close the show out coming up next with inner interweb, interweb insanity, some craziness from the Internet. We're going to do that next year on the Common Good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the Internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, I'm Brian Fromm. That music can only mean one thing. What's that one thing, that Brian? That one thing is interweb insanity. You almost forgot again. I did. <laughs> I always just want to say internet insanity. In fact, I did it in yesterday's show. I think it's okay that you call that. I don't know if there's any like official ruling on You've this. You've made it the official, like, that's what we talk. But that's I'm, not, what we call I'm not a notary or anything. I haven't. <laughs> it's, not, it's not legally binding. <laughs> I'm going to try to use that phrase at any point today. I'm not a notary or anything. You should use it like as a weird comeback. My kids are going to ask me a question. I'm going to go, not a notary or anything. Like, what? What does if we can get ice cream or not have to do with that at all? I don't <laughs> it's get it. Be just my line for everything. I like that. that. I like that. Please hey, let me Pastor, know. Do you know how to do this? I'm not notary or anything. <laughs> Please do it and then tell me tomorrow in what circumstances. I'm going to use that line somewhere today. <laughs> what a weird, weird challenge uh, to give yourself. That's funny. What if it was actually a question where it required me to be a notary? And I'm like, oh, that'd be really. F- I would. I'd be tickled pink. Uh, so the way this works is uh, our producers, both PJ and Keith Conrad, they have given us. He uh, hates that nickname, by the way. I know. <laughs> stories from the internet. He's laughing at us right now. Stories from the internet. Just crazy stories. We've not read these. We're reading them sight unseen. Yeah. So as we like to say, if you're insulted, we're insulted with you. So that's right. Here we go. Ian will go first. You want me to kick you off? I do. Kick you off? Kick what us off. Sure. <laughs> Canada. Uh, drunk raccoons spotted stumbling around in Canadian neighborhood. Seemingly drunk raccoons. Sounds like Canada to me. (laughs) America's landlord. Uh, Seemingly drunk raccoons have been stumbling through a Canadian neighborhood in recent days, and the reason may surprise you. Residents of Stittsville, a suburb of Ottawa, Ontario, have spotted the raccoons. (laughs) I'm going to keep saying raccoons. Raccoons, that's funny. Which are nocturnal creatures, not acting like their usual selves. Quote, he couldn't really move, one resident, Emily Rogers, told CBC News of a raccoon she saw on (laughs) September 2nd. He was dragging his legs. He was wobbling, having a hard time standing up. You can tell something was wrong with him for sure. The day before, another resident, Julie Fong, said a local officer requested permission to enter her backyard as there have been uh, concern about a raccoon in the area that seemed drunk. So that's why this guy was kind of sleeping it off under our deck. <laughs> there was a drunk raccoon under our deck, Fong said, adding her husband saw the creature earlier that day. He said it was sort of stumbling along, just looking completely off like somebody who may have had a few extra libations would be walking. 
My I just wonder if people turn on their radio at the exact wrong time. And they're like, what? They're I thought this was Christian talk. Turns so, out, by the way, they were drunk on crab apples. Yes, it's fermented okay. fruit. So, <laughs> Wisconsin, uh, America's uh, cheese grater. Python wow. found after nearly a week on the loose in a Wisconsin school. A, a python that escaped from its terrarium inside a high school classroom was nope. located nope. about a week later with help from exp- ex- reptile experts Blech. and thermal imaging. Officials at Fond du Lac High School said the snake is the pet of the science teacher who's been ringing, bringing the reptile to school for oh, years. No. He escaped from his cage during Labor Day weekend just before the first day of school, setting off a week-long search for the non-venomous snake. Snakes. Yeah, Why that, did it have to be snakes? Of course it had to be that one. Yeah. I like that they included non-venomous, so nothing to worry nothing about. To worry about. It's still it a will, python. Jeez Louise. It will eat you. California, America's... No, Beach party. Yeah. Boat falls off trailer. Owner abandons ship. <laughs> An 18-foot-long boat fell off a trailer on, I don't even know what that is, what street? Northeast of North Harbor Drive on Tuesday. Police came across the grounded vessel just before noon. It blocked the uh, the leftmost lane of eastbound, blah, 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 blah. Who cares? San Diego police said the steel fishing boat was deemed a traffic hazard. While no crime was committed, a tow or impound fee may be sent to the boat's owner, police said. I'll never let go. <laughs> that was pretty funny. Was so the Do you first think he saw it was like just let it leave it? Leave it. We don't did. need it. It went off. He's like, I don't know how to put that back on. It's traffic all around. Can us. you imagine being such a baller that you don't even turn around for your boat? You're it's like, like I'll, get it, I'll get another one. Just one of many. <laughs> you get home and your wife's like, Why are we buying another boat? Ours ah, is back on the, in the middle. Of the <laughs> you can go get it if you want. Uh, New York, America's apple. Uh, oh, you're being very practical. Texas <laughs> man attacks the Wall Street bull with a banjo. <laughs> That's new video shows the moment a Texas truck driver oh, attacked no. the charging bull statue in this financial district with a beefed up banjo. Beefed uh, up, that's good. Yeah, the he uh, can be heard calling the iconic bronze bull the devil as he hacks away at the statue <laughs> with each impact sending a loud per, uh, percussive clang. It was an odd sight, hmm. even one for the tour- tourism industry worker uh, who said he had spent a decade in the area. Uh, and so it goes on and on. But this guy was just hitting the bull with a banjo. Hit him with a banjo. <laughs> a banjo, man? What? I'm helping. Where is he going to get a banjo? I don't know. But I saw a guy get hit with a banjo once, and he went down. It's oddly specific. Yeah, it's pretty on the nose. I, uh, I'm i not going to read it, but I personally love to see you squirm a little bit when you're reading <laughs> paragraphs that are completely inappropriate. Yep. And you're like, I uh, um, well, hey, can't, can't read that. And uh, let's get out of the segment. Okay, <laughs> last but not least, Sweden, scientists suggest eating human flesh to fight climate change. Do your part. <sighs> do your part. <laughs> That's the message today on The Common Good. Do your part. Uh, Brian, do you know that every fight is a food fight if you're a cannibal? Okay. A Swedish scientist speaking at Stockholm Summit uh, last week offered an unusual possible tactic in combating local climate, a global climate change eating human flesh. Stockholm School of Economics professor and researcher Magnus Soderlund. That sounds like the name of somebody who would recommend this. Who would eat flesh. Yes. Right. Reportedly <laughs> said he believes eating human meat derived from dead bodies might be able to help save the human race if only a world society were, quote, awakened to the idea. You gotta tell them 
Silent Green is people! <laughs> oh my god. What a weird note for us to end That's on. That's a weird one. Oh, it was a dark show, so we're going to end with cannibalism. Louise, Louise. <laughs> well, we hope your day uh, turns brighter after this. Uh, we're glad that you joined us today. What do they uh, give the cannibal that showed up late to the dinner party? Go ahead. They gave him the cold shoulder. <laughs> And on that free and tickets, <laughs> I'm Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Woo! Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life.